We are continuing in our verse-by-verse exposition of this book, this rich book. Today we will be finishing up chapter 5. The title of today's sermon is The Scope and End of Church Discipline and the Key Words for You Kids in Training um, for our Associate, Judge, and Purge. Associate, Judge, and Purge. I want to read the entire chapter again. I did that a couple of weeks ago when we started this chapter, and then I'm going to um, make a few introductory comments, and then we'll get into the text. We're going to be looking at today, verses 9 through 13. So follow along with me in verse 1 of chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, Paul is dealing with a very serious issue in this church. uh, The toleration of sin in the body. Uh, This man uh, has had a... Uh, began a relationship, a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Um, And so Paul is rebuking this church, not necessarily rebuking the man per se here. He's rebuking the church for their tolerance and their their tolerating view of sin in in, in this city, in this church. Uh, They, I guess, in in the realm of loving and tolerance, they had embraced this man and said, well, I'm just going to turn a blind eye to this sin. It's not a serious issue. And so Paul is bringing them to task. He's saying, uh, should, are you guys are arrogant. Should you not rather be mourning this sin, not opening your arms wide and receiving this man into the body? You should be mourning over the sin, not only that this man is doing to himself, but what this is doing to the body of Christ. This church is witness. And so Paul instructs them on what they should be doing. He's already passed judgment himself. He's not even there. And he's already weighed the situation and, and found this man guilty and says, when you assemble, you need to, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you in the power of Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And we talked about what, that's, what that means 
that this man is, 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 in, is in, involved in a lustful relationship and he's being consumed by his own sinful lust. And so what Paul is saying is that remove this man from the protection of the, of the church. Remove this man into Satan's realm, which is in the world, so that uh, Satan may be used by God in order to buffet this man's flesh, in order to bring him, hopefully, to a place of repentance and restoration, so that his saved, so that his spirit, as Paul says, may be saved in the day of the Lord. <coughs> and so then last week we looked at why, and, this, and, and that first week was really what we were talking about, is this issue of church discipline. And that's probably a four-letter word today in the, in the, in the uh, Christian world, is this issue of church discipline and the church having to actually call sin, sin within its own ranks, and we're actually removing this if, if need be. And we talked about the steps of that and what you're supposed to go through. We've seen in Matthew 18 and in here in 1 Corinthians 5. And so then last week we looked at verses 6 through 8 and where Paul is explaining why is this important? Why am I making a big deal of this? Why am I not joining in with you to tolerate this man in his sin? And so Paul goes through and explains the leavening influence, the permeating influence of sin uh, in, in the body. It starts in a person, individual's life. If they begin to tolerate a little bit of sin in their life, before you know it, he's becoming more and more engrossed in sin. And then that sin becomes worse and worse, and then it begins to morph and spread, and other sins begin to creep in. And before you know it, the man is engrossed in immorality and all sorts of immorality and sin. And so that just, and it doesn't just stop there. It's like the leaven. It's like the leaven in the, in the dough. Whenever you put it in, it begins to permeate through the dough. And so that's what Paul was teaching us last week, is that this issue of sin in the body will begin to infect others around you. It's like a cancer. It's like the most contagious cancer, contagious disease ever known to man, uh, sin. And so it's going to become involved in, in creeping into other people's lives. And so that's what Paul is getting at in verses 6 through 8. And then today we're going to see... Ultimately, even beyond that, why this issue is so important, because what Paul is getting to, what Paul, why Paul has to make this an issue, why he's bringing it to the forefront, why he is being so, so uh, uh, authoritative in his comments and so uh, incensed in his comments is because Paul Paul wants the church to be pure as Christ wants the church to be pure. He wrote to the to the church in Ephesus, he was explaining the, the nature of a husband and wife relationship. But he says in, in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the purpose that Christ has for his body, for his bride. It is to be uh, is to be in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, that it might be holy and without blemish. That's why Christ died for the church. Not to just let the church go on and, and, and live in this world as if nothing has changed and then have a ticket punch to make it into the, he- to the gates of heaven upon death. Christ died for the body. Christ died for the church so that it might be a splendorous bride, a beautiful bride. And so Christ has as its aim the purity of the church. And that's what Paul has at issue here. This church cannot be called a pure church as long as it's tolerating sin in the body. And so church discipline is really a call to church purity. 
Church discipline is given by Christ to the church because he wants the church to be pure. So that's what we're going to be looking at in verses 9 through 13 today. First, we're going to look at our first point in verses 9 and 10. We're going to see what church purity is not. And then in verse 11, we're going to see what it is. And then in verses 12 and 13, we're going to see what church purity requires of us. And so let's look at verses 9 and 10 again. I'll read them again for you. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. And so Paul here is showing that this is not the first letter that he's written to this church. There is a lost letter that he had written previously uh, to this congregation. And one of the issues he was dealing with them was about sexual immorality in the people. And and what he wrote to them uh, apparently was confused by them. They began to to think that, well, he just means the sexually immoral of this world. I'll just stay away from these people and I'm not going to turn a blind eye to the people who he's focusing on in the church. And so Paul begins to straighten this confusion out. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. And so the point I want us to get here, and this is this might be a little bit of a side issue on what we're looking at here, but it's very important on, on what Paul is, is trying to show them here because it's our relationships. And this is what we're going to be talking about today is our relationships. What should our relationships in this world look like? Well, first... These people had begun to disassociate their, their self, themselves from the people around them, the people in the, in the city, the unsaved people. And so they had adopted a, uh, uh, an isolationist mentality, an isolationist or separatist mentality or a monastic mentality. We've all seen or, or maybe even heard of the, the monks who take these vows and they go off into the mountains somewhere in these in these monasteries and they close themselves out from the world and they take these vows and they do that because they think that's the way they're they're showing they're becoming more holy before God. That's the way they're turning themselves away from sin. We see this even up in the uh, in, in the in the north a little bit in Pennsylvania, the Amish uh, people have have taken the uh, have adopted this lifestyle of separating themselves from the evil influence of the world. And so. Uh, they don't have any, they have very little contact with the outside world because they think the world is evil and it's going to influx, influence them and come into and take over them. And so Paul is saying, that's not what I'm talking about. If that's what you're thinking, that's what I'm not talking about. How should we view the people of this world? Well, let's, let's look at a couple of places and see how Jesus viewed the people in the world. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, it says, As Jesus passed from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. And not sacrifice, for I came to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then a later incident in Matthew chapter 11, he's, he's having the same thing going on, a similar thing. And he says, the son of man came, or these people were, con, or, were accusing him of being a glutton. He says, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
And so Jesus clearly did not have an isolationist attitude. He came, as he said, to seek and save those who were lost. Those who did not think they were lost see no need for a Savior, so he did not come to seek after them. He came to seek after those who were lost. Jesus did not isolate himself from lost people. Just the opposite. He came to seek them out. But who was Jesus? Listen to this in Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a, such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Do you see? Who was Jesus? He was the sinless Son of God. And his, here it says He was holy and righteous and separated from sinners. Not in locality, but in essence. He was sinless. But yet, that did not keep him from reaching out to these people. He reached out to the dregs of society. He drove the Pharisees crazy. The people they would have nothing to do with and they would cross to the other side of the street to avoid. Jesus went specifically to them because they were lost and they needed a Savior. And so that begs the question, doesn't the Bible command us to live a separated life? 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separated from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Well, that sounds contradictory, doesn't it? He's telling us to come out from them. Do not touch them. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What accord with Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And so again, we have to separate this issue of talking about who we are in Christ as opposed to who we relate to and the people that we go out to in this world. And so, does the Bible command us to live a separated life? It absolutely does. It tells us not to act like the world, not to live like the world, not to do the things they do. When it comes to sinful behavior, it's telling us not to do those things. Separate what, what relationship do you have with unbelievers and their lifestyles? How can you cannot live like they live when it comes to sinful thinking or wrong thinking? We do not adopt the world's worldview. The the world has its own worldview. Right. And it's not God's worldview. It is not of God. And so we do not adopt their sinful thinking. We do not think like they do. But also, and most importantly, when it comes to fellowship in the biblical sense, and we're going to expound on this a lot more as we go further, but we all know when, when God talks about fellowship in the Scriptures, He's not talking about necessarily what we're going to do after this is over where we go have a meal together. That's a very small part of what fellowship is. A very small part. When the Bible talks about fellowship, it uses that word koinonia. It's not something that we artificially create with other people. Koinonia fellowship is something that God creates for us through salvation. We experience this type of fellowship not because we, we are able to, we're able to reach out to this person or this person is friends with me and we have this fellowship going on to where we hang out together. That's not what it's talking about. The fellowship that God speaks about in the Bible is a fellowship that is grounded in the cross of Christ, defined by the cross of Christ, and defined by our common salvation 
are being called out of darkness. And so what does it mean on a practical level about how we should view friendships with lost people? Because it sounds on one end, Jesus came and he reached out to sinners. He did have no problem going to have to have lunch with them. He laid there with Matthew and his friends, his, his tax collecting friends, and, and he had a meal with them. And he reached out to all sorts of other lost people and he healed them. So what sense is, is it OK for Jesus to do that? But then God says, remove yourselves from their midst. Don't have fellowship with light. What fellowship does light have with darkness? So I think the answer is that when I is think about this, when I have a relationship or friendship with a lost person that gets to the level where I forget that he or she is a lost person, then I think we have crossed over into a bad relationship. If I can have a relationship with someone, a friend or a neighbor or or a coworker or a family member, and I forget the fact that they are lost and in need of a Savior, then I am in a wrong relationship with them. That is their greatest need. That is what they need. They need, they need Christ. They need salvation. And so does that mean we don't have relationships with lost people? No, it does not. But we, have to, we just have to know what we're doing Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 10 tells us how we are to conduct ourselves in this life. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all purity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So it clearly tells us what our actions should be. But it's not saying you have to, to remove yourselves from these people and that's going to do it. That's not going to do it. This is a battle amongst our own selves and, and turning away from our own sin. You will not do that if you take a monastic vow and go up and live in the mountains for the rest of your life. You will still battle the lust of your own flesh. The sin that is still in you, you will still battle it. And then Jesus said very clearly in John chapter 17, as he prayed for his people, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. There it is. That's what Jesus wants for us. He does not want us to leave the world. We cannot turn our backs on lost people, on sinners, on this type of person and that type of person who does not fit our idea of what a holy or righteous person looks like. We do not turn our back on these people. We do not adopt their ways. We do not become what they are to reach them. But nevertheless, that is our mission field. This world is our mission field. Jesus said in Matthew 5, we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. How can salt... If it's lost its saltiness, become a preservative again. It cannot. It can, it's, it's lost its usefulness then. 
How can a light go in and shine the world if you put your basket over it and hide it under a basket? It cannot. And so we have to understand that we are not of this world. And Paul was trying to, 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 to confront these people here to tell them that the sin in the body is what you should focus on. But the, but the issue is not the people of the world. That is not the problem. He's going to go on to explain it later about how we judge people. But we have to understand that we're in this world. This is our mission field. And we have to rub elbows with them because that's what God has for us to do. Because we have the message that they need. An illustration is like it's a, a ship that's on the ocean. You know, a, a naval ship or, or, or a cruise ship, as long as it's on the ocean, it's functioning the way it's designed to function, right? You're going from one place to the next. It's on the ocean. But what happens when the ocean comes into the ship? Then it's no longer functioning as it was designed and, and, and doom and destruction is imminent. A ship will function on the ocean perfectly as it was designed to do, but as soon as the ocean comes into the ship, it ceases to be an effective ship and it will be destroyed. That is, that is the picture of the Christian. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. Jesus says, I did not, I'm not praying for you to be removed from the world, but you are my salt and my light. You are the messengers of the gospel. And we are to love this world as Jesus loved tax collectors and sinners as He went to them to preach to them and to heal them and to serve them. And I think this is an issue that we that Christians in America especially struggle with. We, we adopt this elitist mindset whenever we become Christians, whenever we've We've arrived whenever we've been exposed to the truth and we're growing in our faith. And we look at the, we look at the world and they say, how can you do those things? How can you commit this sexual immorality? How can you do this? How can you hang out over here? How can you drink this? Or how can you eat that? Or how can you do this? How can you go there? How can you watch that movie? How? Why not? Why would they not? They're sinners. That's what they do. That's what we did. Is it not? Is that your testimony? It is mine. That's what I did. And so it is not our job to judge them and condemn them for it. It is our job to be there with, to be that salt and light influence in their life so that we can be used as somebody used some, a person with us to draw us out of that world. But if we take this self-righteous attitude like the Pharisees did, we will always be condemning those who go into the world to reach out to them. And so Paul is very clearly saying, when I'm talking about church purity, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm focusing on church purity, I'm not talking about trying to straighten out the world. That's not what I'm focused on. What is Paul talking about? Let's look at verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And so this is what Paul is saying. This is what he's saying I'm after. This is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this person who calls himself a brother. That's where the judgment begins. That's when we begin to rise our to raise our heads and look and, and, and call things for what they are and call these sins sins and to call them into account. Purity in the Christian life is not isolating ourselves from our mission field. Purity in the Christian life is not being conformed also to our mission field. 
Purity in the Christian life is taking sin seriously within the body. We don't expect lost people to live like saved people. And so what, is, so what Paul is saying very clearly is, is, I'm not focused on the world. That is not my issue this morning. My issue is with this so-called brother, this brother who was involved in this sexual immorality with his stepmother. He is calling himself a brother. That is what I'm focused on. And this person is in unrepentant sin. And the Bible has several places where it talks about how we deal with brothers who are in sin. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Second Thessalonians three sixteen and 14 says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. And so those are strong words from the apostle in in several different situations where he's saying, mark these people, mark them out, set a mark on them in your mind, set them apart, realizing that they are walking contrary to what they've been taught. Avoid them because of the permeating nature of sin. And why do we avoid them? So that they may be ashamed. Do we want to create shame in them? Not for shame's sake, but we do want to create a situation upon them that they should feel the shame of their sin. It is a sad day when we individually get to the place where we don't feel shame for our sin. That must be a constant battle for us that we constantly are looking at sin and calling it for what God is. And we must feel ashamed of it. And so sometimes we get so blinded by our own sin, we get so engrossed in it, it becomes it overtakes us and consumes us that we can no longer see it. And so then we need each other's help. We need each other to call ourselves out and to call ourselves back. And hopefully that will bring about the shame. And so Paul says here, there's this person, here's this man who's having this relationship with his stepmother. You should be mourning over him. And now I'm telling you to put him out. And why am I telling you? Because you should not be associating with anyone who bears the name of brother. That word associate means to mix up together, to keep company with. This is not just some casual acquaintance. This means a very intimate relationship is going on here. A very close relationship, a very close friendly relationship. He's saying not even to associate with this man because he bears the name of brother. And notice he begins to expand the list here. The the, the man here was engrossed in sexual immorality. But Paul doesn't stop there. He begins to lay it out further. He says, uh, do do not associate anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler. And so... He began to say, now I'm going to take this illustration of this one man. I'm going to deal with this one sin. But now I'm also going to teach you things about yourselves as well. Because no doubt these other sins were being tolerated. Here again, we see the danger of sin. Tolerating sin, it doesn't stop. It spreads. They were tolerating these other things as well. And we see through these things very clearly. We, see, we can see the Ten Commandments in this, can't you not? The greedy, the idolater, the drunkard, the swindler, the reviler. We see all through these lists that Paul is laying out here is the things that God has said is evil. And these people have turned their back on and they're saying they're no longer evil. 
And so Paul here is very clearly saying, this is what I'm talking about. This person who calls himself a brother. I'm not focused on the world. I'm not trying to straighten out the world. We have to clean up our own house. And because this man bears the name of brother, what does it mean to bear the name of a, of a brother? What do we carry with us when we go if we call ourselves a Christian? We carry the name of Christ. We are bearing the name of Christ. We are billboards. They're epistles, as Paul says. Our life is an epistle to the world. It's a book. It's an open book. When we walk and, and, and do our business in this world and we live in this world, people see who we are. They see who we claim to be and then they judge that. They base that on, on, on what they see. And so if I look no different than they do, then this Christ that I claim to follow becomes a very small person in their estimation. He is of no account. He's all powerful. He changes things. He saves people. Really? Look at this person over here. He looks no different than I do. This Christ is, no, is not powerful. He does not make differences in people's lives. And so you see the scoffing and the mocking that we bring and bite whenever we bear the name of brother and we live like the world. And so Paul here is saying church purity is not judging the world. Church purity is about judgment within the body of Christ. And that was our final point in verses 12 and 13. He says, for what have I do to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you were to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Church purity requires judgment. That's not popular. Everybody, under, everybody understands and memorizes the verse of judge not lest you be judged. We're told that constantly from the world, but we even take that upon ourselves and we, we use it in a wrong manner. Who am I to judge this person over here? Who am I to, to, to stand in judgment of his lifestyle? How dare I do this? I have my own sins. If I, if I judge this person, he's going to judge me back. Who am I to do that? Isn't that what we say? What right do we have to pass judgment? Aren't we just all sinners? Have you not heard that before or said that yourself? I'm just a sinner. God understands I'm a sinner. Yeah, He understands that, but He also understands what He's done for sinners. And so Paul's saying, for whatever you would do with judging outsiders, that's not our business. And that's where we get all backwards. We, we spend a lot of time judging outsiders, do we not? Every four years, the church galvanizes in this community to say, down with liquor. Down with alcohol. Now, I don't know what your opinion is on alcohol, whether it should be drunk or not, or drank or not drank by a Christian. That's not the point. The point is, when does this community hear from the churches uh, together? When we're judging them. No wonder they laugh at us. Why not judge pastors who are overweight? I never, I haven't heard, I haven't seen that memo yet, or that um, 
vote. No, that's where we get it all backwards. We're not called to judge outsiders. We can look at their activities and say that's sinful and we will not participate in that with you. But we don't take this elitist attitude with it like the Pharisee did with the, tech, with the, with the publican, right? Lord, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here or this sinner. Thank you that I'm not like this person who does this and that. Arrogance. Arrogance. Paul says, I do not judge outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Yes, it is. And that's what Paul, what Jesus was teaching us in Matthew 18. In the last step of church discipline, he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is where it gets tough, honestly. When I read this, when I'm, in, when I'm involved in the issues of church discipline and it gets to this place, I, I, I invariably want to just build an altar and worship because I sometimes don't know what to do. But it's clearly what our duty is. We are to make judgments. Purge the evil persons from among you. Get them out. Turn them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, for their good. Love your brother so much that you will remove yourself from him so that Satan can have his way with him, ultimately so God can restore him. Remove him from the protection of the church. But that's, that's hard to do. It's very hard to do. We're not making judgment of these people's souls if this happens. We're not saying this person has lost their salvation or they never were saved in the first place. We cannot make those judgments. I cannot see into a person's heart and see if they're truly saved. But what we are declaring is that something is wrong with this person's declaration that he is a brother, that he is a believer. Something's wrong. And so we must remove them for the sake of this person so that ultimately his Flesh will be buffeted by Satan that God will use something to bring him back to a place of restoration, which is what we want. That's the most loving thing you can do for a brother who's caught in sin. It's to not tolerate it, not, not sweep it under the rug, not just ignore it. It's to help the person get out of the sin. Because the sin will ultimately consume him and destroy him. So we're making a declaration that something is wrong here. You must be put out. And then, what does that mean to put that person out? What does it mean to treat that person as a, as a Gentile and a tax collector? Well, I've, I've, I've tried to do a lot of reading, a lot of studying on this, because there's a lot of disagreement over what this means. But I want us to just, just think about what it meant to the Jews who Jesus was preaching to in Matthew when he said that, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Who were Gentiles and tax collectors? Gentiles were people who were outside of the covenant community of Israel. They never were a part of the covenant community of Israel. A tax collector was, at one time, a part of the covenant community of Israel, but they had turned their back on their people for financial gain to be instruments of Rome to gather taxes. 
They were unscrupulous men for the most part. And so these were people that the Jews would have understood to say, I will not be around these people. These people will not be around me. And so Jesus is saying here that if you get to the point to where a person will not repent of their sins, after they've gone through numerous opportunities, numerous steps, numerous appeals by different people, all the way to the end where the entire body of Christ unites and says what you are doing is sin and you must stop, you must repent and turn, and they refuse even that. He says, you have, done, you have gone as far as you can go, church. You must remove them from your midst and treat them as a heathen and a tax collector. A Gentile and a tax collector. So what does that mean in practical terms? How do we do that? Well, I don't think it means that we're to be rude to them or ugly to them. And some people have said, well, maybe this you just, you just treat them as an evangelistic prospect. I don't think it's that simple. Yes, they need evangelism. Yes, they may be unconverted. But it's not that simple. You know why? Because with a rank unbeliever, someone who has never known Christ, never named the name of Christ, what are, why are they acting the way they act? Because they're ignorant. They're ignorant of the truth. But a person who has been removed from the midst of the church, who has, been, who has gone through these steps of discipline, has refused to repent, has called himself a brother the whole time, is he acting in ignorance? No, he is not. He's acting in arrogance. There's a difference. And so this person may ultimately be unconverted, but we don't know that. And so... I'm going to be a lot more patient and a lot more lenient with an unbeliever than I am a person who is in rebellion. And that's what a, that's what a person who's got to this point has, is in, is in rank rebellion. He has stood on numerous occasions before God's people and says, I hear what you're saying, but I disagree. What, what I am doing is not sin. And I will not turn and I will not repent. And so something is seriously wrong there. John MacArthur says in his commentary that his church will not even allow someone who's been excommunicated to even come to the worship service. Think about that for a minute. It kind of strikes you deep, doesn't it? They're not even allowed in the worship service. I don't know if I agree with that, but I will say this. If a person who has, has gone this far in their sin and they are continuously being unrepentant and rebellious towards God's authority in the church, if that person can come and sit in a worship service and go on with life as normal, something is seriously wrong. What is that person saying? That person is saying, I hear what you're saying, but I ignore it. And I'm even going to go a step further. I'm going to come sit down with you and sing praises to the God that I am in rebellion to. That's dangerous. Heaping coals, heaping condemnation upon themselves. Now, we, have no, we don't go that far to where we refuse somebody to come to the worship service. But if it ever got to this step, there would be something seriously wrong if a person could feel at ease to come sit among God's people, the people who have called him to repentance and he's refused, if that person can come and sit down by us and sing, then something is wrong. Something is wrong. 
And so how do we treat people who have been excommunicated from the church? Well, we're not to be rude to them. And we do, in some sense, look at them as an evangelistic prospect. But the relationships that we have shared with them can no longer be the same as they used to be. They cannot. Because as Paul said earlier, if somebody is, does not listen to the teaching of this book, this, this letter, stay away from them so that they might be ashamed. So one, I believe one of the reasons why people can just can go through sin and be unrepentant as they are and then go on with life as normal is because the church doesn't call it into account. They can easily go down the road to another church and just sit down in the pews and begin to worship like nothing has happened. But I think even also, even amongst the people who are calling them into account, we struggle at holding that account and accountability for the long haul, for the long term. And so how do we relate to these people? When we see them in the, in the marketplace, when we see them at work, do we, not, do we cross the road to avoid them? No. But I think somewhere in our conversations it should come very quickly the issue at hand, and that is unrepentance. We should be calling them into account. We cannot go on with life as normal. Because one of the things that God says... In condemning, he said to the Jews who were in condemning their attitude and what they were doing by turning their turning their backs on him, is that his name was being blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because his own people could just carry on a cavalier attitude towards sin. They would do whatever was right in their own eyes, and because of that, God's name was blasphemed among the Gentiles. And that's what a person, that's what a Christian, that's what a brother who names the name of Christ is doing if he's living in unrepentant sin. He is blaspheming the name of God and the world sees that. And so we must call it into account in a loving way. It should, we should cry rivers of tears when people get to that level. Because we love that person. Also, because we love the testimony of God's church. And we love God in His name. And we want God's name to be magnified in the community, not blasphemed. And so, in conclusion, what do, we, what do you think about purity? Is it an issue? Is it an issue for you and is it an issue for me? Do I think about that a lot? Is it important? Do we hold unbelievers to a standard that we are unable to keep? Or do we uh, so identify and blend into the world that you are not even a missionary to anybody in the first place? We are in the world, but not of the world. Keep in mind that church discipline has as its goal the ultimate good of the person in sin, the corporate witness of the church, and that God would be glorified. That's why we do it. That's why we do it. And it's hard sometimes because you have to call dear friends to account. And I've had to do some of that. And you guys have had to do that. 
And as much as we love each other in this room this morning, we should always be willing and ready to turn, to turn any one of us over to Satan if it come to it. If any of us get so engrolled in sin that we will, not return, we will not turn from it, we have to get to the point to where we say, I love you so much I'm going to remove myself from you so that God might restore you. Because that is what they ultimately need and that is what, that is what we should want for them more than anything. And then what do we do if a person does come back? Oh, what a glorious day that is when God's people return and repent and they're restored. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul was writing his second letter to the church in Corinth and he says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Here it is. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish and heart with many tears. He's talking about his previous writings, which would have been 1 Corinthians. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely for all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Here's the person who had come back. He's being restored. And so now what does God's people do? We surround him with loving arms and forgiveness. The slate is wiped clean. You are back in, 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 in you are back with your church. You are back with God's people. We will not discuss that anymore. It's over. It's done. Repentance has come. What a glorious day. God's people are forgiving people. But we also must call sin, sin when it comes to that. But we are always ready to forgive. Always. Eagerly looking for that. As the prodigal son, the prodigal father, looking for the, for the son who came back. The prodigal son. Right? He didn't go looking for him in the mire. He didn't go rescue him back from the mire. The man had to come to that on his own. He came to repentance. But then he didn't even make it back to the house. The father saw him coming and he ran to him and threw his arms around him and and made a feast for him. What a glorious picture of forgiveness. And that's what we are here to do. We're here to restore and love each other. But we also have to do the hard work from time to time. And that's what Paul is doing to this church. This was no doubt a very serious and hard thing for them to deal with. They've been tolerating this man's sin for a while, and now they were called, being told to call it into account. And that's very difficult. And so what do I do when one of my friends is in sin? I go to him one-on-one. If he won't listen to me, I go and we get some, a couple of others to come along to establish the truth. And if he does not listen to them, we bring the whole church and the pastors into it. All the time looking for restoration, praying for restoration to take place. And the moment it does, it's over. We're restored and we're back to where we were as if it didn't happen. But we have to take the mindset of Jesus that He wants His bride to be pure and spotless. And so, if we're all doing the hard work of self-discipline, 
and then if need be, accountability amongst each other, then Christ's church will be pure, as pure as it can be this side of heaven. That's our goal. That's the goal of what church discipline is about. It's not the banner that you wear in front of you and say, okay, we're, 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 we do church discipline all the time. That's what we're here to do. No, that's, that's there as a safety net. It's the medicine you need in the medicine cabinet you go to when you need it. It's not what defines you. What defines us is that we are Christ's bride. And we agree with Him that we want our church pure. And in situations where that's not happening, we must go into action. And so that's what we're here to do. May God bless us to be a pure church. May God bless us to be slaying sin in our bodies. And may God bless us to be a loving church to this world and to each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for for this provision that You've given us in Your Word, Lord, on how to deal with the issue of sin. And Father, we admit, readily admit, that we fail and that we don't understand all the parameters all the time because they're so difficult. They're so difficult. It's so hard to call another brother into to account. It's so hard, Father, to turn our backs on relationships. It's so hard to follow Your way sometimes, Lord, and sometimes almost be be set apart from other people because we are looked at upon as cruel and judgmental. Father, these things are so hard. And so I pray for Your grace to be able to do it rightly, lovingly, and to call sin, sin. Because our goal, Lord, is that Your name will not be blasphemed amongst the Gentiles, but that Your name will be echoed in this community as all glorious. A powerful God who changes people. Bless us to be that type of church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.